Good morning again. I feel like I was just here. <laughs> uh, earlier this morning, the parties were discussing the concept of the Minnesota base amount and how it is determined. And even though we've moved on to this denominator issue, I'd like to stay with the base amount for a few minutes because as we discussed, the first step in the base amount is generally determined by multiplying two factors, average annual gross receipts in the current period, which I'm, I'm just gonna shorthand as current gross receipts, and an amount called the fixed base percentage. Now, in both of the cases before the court today, the tax court correctly determined that both the base amount and the fixed base percentage had a state law meaning, a Minnesota meaning, when determining the Minnesota R&D credit. So I wanna review first kind of the mechanics of both the base amount and the fixed base percentage because that'll facilitate this discussion. The Minnesota base amount is determined by multiplying Minnesota current gross receipts by the Minnesota fixed base percentage. And as we were just discussing, the term fixed base percentage is not explicitly used in the Minnesota statute, but the base amount cannot be calculated without it. So it's incorporated by necessity into the Minnesota statute and the tax court correctly recognized this in its order and none of the parties dispute that this is the case. So the fixed base percentage is a ratio and it's a ratio between qualified research expenditures, that's the numerator, and aggregate gross receipts, that's the denominator, and those amounts are all for a particular period of time, we'll call it the base period. For these taxpayers in particular, that's 1984 through 1988. It can be different for certain other taxpayers, maybe who didn't exist during that time period. But for most taxpayers, 1984 to 1988 is the base period. And the general idea behind the fixed base percentage is a simple one. During the base period, what percentage of total gross receipts did the taxpayer spend on qualified research? So this fixed base percentage establishes the basic minimum percentage that's going to be used going forward to current period, that's current gross receipts. That's, you multiply those two together and you kind of use that to figure out what the base amount is. The base amount is the amount that the taxpayer has to kind of establish at a base level to receive a credit. Can I, can I just, so when, in 2017, when the legislature changed subdivision 2C to include average annual gross receipts and aggregate gross receipts, must be calculated, so they added the words aggregate gross receipts. Was that statute made retroactive? It was not explicitly made retroactive, no, Your Honor. So it was effective as of August 1st or whatever date in 2017? It was, it was effective as of that date, but the intention... Um, no, it, I... Okay, go ahead. Yes, well, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but the idea was that this is how the commissioner had always interpreted the statute. So it was, the statute was amended to be consistent with the longstanding uh, interpretation of the statute and the way the statute had always been interpreted. And if I can just... Uh, I, I don't want to get too far off track from this discussion, but the, the forms, for example, 
that the, ta that the commissioner had published since, for example, 1992 was the earliest I could go back and find them, had always set forth the calculation of the fixed base percentage in a manner that was consistent with the amendment of the statute in 2017. So yes, it was not made retroactive, but it was consistent with that longstanding practice. Okay, thank you. Of course. So multiplying current period gross receipts by that fixed base percentage, which is that ratio, is how one obtains the base amount. And the general idea behind the base amount is to set a base for comparison against current period QREs, uh, qualified research expenditures. You subtract the base amount from QREs, and if you have a positive amount, the credit is available. And I'm, for purposes of discussion, I'm kind of leaving out the um, minimum base amount limitation because it just confuses our calculation. But that is the idea. The idea is the base amount sets a basic research effort, the base amount of research effort the taxpayer has to satisfy to demonstrate its eligibility for a credit. And if there is a net positive amount when you subtract one from the other, then the taxpayer is eligible for a credit. And that is because, as we discussed at length earlier, the credit is an incremental credit. You have to show that you increased your research in the current period over that base amount to be eligible for a credit. It's for increasing your research effort, your research spending in this current period over that base amount. So that base amount is that central concept in that Minnesota R&D credit. And it relies on the fixed base percentage to determine this basic minimum percentage of your research spending. So that spending has to be premised on Minnesota gross receipts in the base period. If you don't use Minnesota gross receipts to calculate this ratio, then when you multiply it by what the statute tells you are current period Minnesota gross receipts, you don't end up with a measure of your Minnesota research effort. So the, I think your argument is the numerator is Minnesota, the denominator's got to be Minnesota too, right? Not really. What I'm, what I'm saying, Your Honor, is because the statute says average annual gross receipts are a Minnesota number, as subdivision 2C tells you they have to be, then the denominator has to be Minnesota. Let's just say for the sake of argument. Well, but in the, uh, with regards to the federal tax credit, the numerator is United States and the denominator is worldwide. Isn't that true? That's correct. So what is, what is it inherently about um, Minnesota that makes us need to have the numerator and the denominator Minnesota, whereas the federal government has two different measures for numerator and denominator. Well, I'm glad you asked, Your Honor, because this is an argument that Mr. Pickard made in his, his brief here before this court and also at summary judgment. And it's not actually, he's also, he kind of contends that the commissioner is making this argument that the numerator and denominator have to match. And that's actually not the argument we're making. Um, suppose for the sake of argument, the Minnesota statute didn't specify Minnesota average annual gross receipts, okay, in 2C. And I'm looking- So you're giving us a hypothetical? 
I'm giving you a hypothetical. I know this is Mr. Pickard's department normally, but I'm, I'm going to steal it from him. Suppose that the statute, in, in the Minnesota statute, subdivision 2C, did not say except that average annual gross receipts must be calculating using Minnesota sales or receipts. I don't know why it wouldn't say that, but let's just pretend for the sake of argument it didn't say that. Suppose that Minnesota, the Minnesota legislature, decided as a policy matter it was fine with calculating the fixed base percentage as a ratio of Minnesota research spending as a percentage of worldwide gross receipts. Then it could take that as a, basically could use that fixed base percentage and multiply it by average annual worldwide gross receipts. That would, mathematically, that would at least make sense. Then you could say, oh, in the current period, as a percentage of our current period worldwide um, earnings, let's just call them earnings, this is how much we spent on research. That would at least make sense as a measure of research effort. It's not that the numerator and denominator have to match. It's that this ratio, the denominator, has to be consistent with the gross receipts on an, on an average annual basis. It's not that the numerator and denominator have to match. They don't. It's just like you said, Your Honor. On, on the federal side, it's nationwide in the numerator and worldwide in the denominator, but it's multiplied by a worldwide term and the commissioner is conceding that in the federal R&D tax credit, the denominator is worldwide receipts because the IRS commissioner interpreted it that way? Correct, Your Honor. But I'm, I'm also saying that the numerator, is, the numerator and denominator don't match on the federal side, but on the federal side, it's also multiplied by a worldwide average annual gross receipts term. So when, I'm just going to use my hands here, and I know this won't reflect in the record, but when you cross-multiply them, the cross-multiplication term between average annual gross receipts and the denominator in the fixed base percentage term, those two do match, and they have to match here, too. And I that's would be lying if I said I completely understood what, you're, what you were saying there, but uh, we'll, we'll think about it. I'm sorry, Your Honor. I took a lot of math at one point, and so I get a little excited about the math. Let me ask you a non-math non question. Okay. In the Minnesota statute... 290.068, subdivision 2, B has a Minnesota-only provision, and C has a Minnesota-only provision, but there's no Minnesota-only provision with regards to the, the definition of aggregate gross receipts. So doesn't that tell us the legislature knows to do Minnesota when it wants to do Minnesota? And if it doesn't do Minnesota, then we look to the uh, to, to 41C. Well, in this case, Your Honor, I I don't think that's the case. I think because the fixed base percentage was not specifically referenced in the Minnesota statute. Not only not specifically referenced, just not referenced at all. Correct. It's not referenced okay. at all, and. Aggregate gross receipts is buried within the fixed base percentage term. So, but so is qualified research expenditures buried in the fixed percentage term, and that is limited to Minnesota. But, Your Honor, 
qualified research expenditures is also used at numerous other points within Section 41, kind of all over the place. 41C, it's used in 41C1. Well, let me just make sure. I don't want to misspeak here. Um, it's used in 41C2, and it's kind of just used all over uh, Section 41C, uh, 41 generally, just all over 41C. It's a very basic concept. And it's actually directly incorporated into the Minnesota statute. So the fact that it's, yes, it is used in 41C3 within the fixed base percentage, um, I, I take your point, Your Honor, but it is And you, also in fact, rely on that in interpreting the fixed base percentage, that it's only Minnesota QREs. I'm sorry, I didn't hear the first part, Your Honor. You, you rely, when you're interpreting what fixed base percentage means, you rely on that definition in subdivision 2A of QRE, that it's limited to Minnesota expenses. Yes, I am, Your Honor. But in this case, I believe it's not that it's an oversight of the legislature. The, the, the statute is just silent on it. It's silent on the fixed base percentage, and it's silent on terms that are used just within the fixed base percentage as well. So it's necessary to interpret it. It's just, it's a term that requires interpretation. So to the extent it requires interpretation, the only interpretation that is reasonable, the only interpretation that makes sense is aggregate Minnesota gross receipts because using the term federal gross receipts simply doesn't make sense. And this is the case because... Well, counsel, the statute's not silent, though, because it incorporates the definitions of Section 41C <clears throat> for a base amount, which incorporates the definition <clears throat> of fixed base percentage, which incorporates the definition of aggregate gross receipts. So that it's, it's not silent. It's simply doing it by reference. Okay. I mean, I, I would accept that. Okay. Maybe, maybe what I am saying maybe what I'm calling silent because it's not explicit, I could also call incorporation by necessity. But in that sense, because it's not explicit. Incorporation by necessity, well, it's, is that it, illegal? I'm having trouble figuring out what that means. Well, maybe that's my own term for the fixed base percentage being incorporated into the statute because it's, it's another, necessary. It's another unnamed canon. <laughs> We're coming up with all kinds of new canons today. What can I say, Your Honor? Right? Mr. Pickard and Mr. Muck got it there, so maybe I can get one in too, right? So but, what, what is, qualified, is qualified research expenditure used anywhere else in 41C? Other than in defining the fixed base percentage? No, I don't believe it is. Because 290.068, base amount, says the base amount, which is what C is about, has to be calculated, including the definitions in Clause A of Subdivision 2. So it actually does explicitly, I mean, this goes to your argument that qualified research expenditures is used everywhere, but our Minnesota statute, specifically for defining fixed base percentage as part of base amount, refers specifically to the Minnesota definition of qualified research expenditures. That's right, but I'm just saying, Qualified research expenditure is used elsewhere in 41C and not just in the fixed base percentage. I'm not sure if I under... 
Okay, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm understanding what you're asking, but it is used. <laughs> okay. Um, but just reading the statute as a whole, though, because of the use of Minnesota terms to calculate all the other parts of the base amount, including it, to calculate all the other parts of the base amount and the credit as a whole, it, it stands to reason that this, let's just call it a question mark term as to what aggregate gross receipts should mean for calculating the Minnesota fixed base percentage needs to be Minnesota aggregate gross receipts. Otherwise, the calculation of the research, the R&D credit doesn't make any sense. It doesn't measure the increase in research effort in Minnesota. It doesn't tell you anything about whether research in Minnesota increased, decreased, or stayed the same during the credit year. I mean, for, for example, I'm just loath to give another math-related example because I'm afraid Justice Lilhog will, will cross his eyes at me. I'm, so. I'm really not anti-math. <laughs> well, let me just, maybe I can give a non-math example. I mean, if you use worldwide gross receipts to, to determine the fixed base percentage, and then you multiply it by Minnesota average annual gross receipts in that four-year period, what does that tell you about the research effort that took place during that period? It doesn't tell you anything. You can't subtract that from qualified research expenditures in Minnesota and know whether the taxpayer spent more on research in Minnesota, less research in Minnesota, or the same amount of research than it did in the base year. Council, I, I agree that your argument makes a fair degree of sense as a matter of policy. And the legislature actually cleaned it up with an amendment to the statute. Um, but I, uh, maybe it didn't. Did the, the, the legislature amended with regards to base amount, right? Um, no, or average. Cleaned it up. Aggregate gross receipts. Okay, so the legislature has cleaned up the problem as a matter of policy. Um, what do you think of the tax court's analysis that by cleaning up the issue, or by clarifying the issue, that actually cuts against the state, as maybe yet another unnamed canon. Well, the commissioner disagrees that this was a prospective amendment of the statute. Um, sometimes, when the language of an amendatory statute is intended to clarify existing policy, then. I mean, I recognize that there is a presumption, generally speaking, that this was an amendatory statute and it's not meant, it's meant to change pre-existing law as opposed to just clarify it. But this, is an, this was an area where this was merely meant to incorporate an existing long-standing policy. Some, do you have some legislative history to the effect that it's a mere clarification rather than something that's substantive? I don't have legislative history to that effect, but I did cite, I believe, in my brief to um, an accompanying Senate fiscal analysis that attributed no revenue impact to the amendment, which shows that this wasn't meant to change 
the revenue impact of this um, amendment to the statute. It wasn't meant to diminish, for example, the amount of um, credit that was going to be available to taxpayers. What, as what case law are you relying on that uh, the 2017 legislature can define what the 20, 1992 legislature meant? I mean, basically your argument is 2017 legislature saying this is what we meant all along. That's what your clarifying argument is. Um, there's a, a case, it is from 1976, um, State by Spanos versus Coin Wholesalers. It's um, at 250 Northwest 2nd, 583. And what does that say? I acknowledge it's not directly on point, but the, um, this court observed that where the language of an amendatory statute is intended to clarify rather than enlarge the powers of an original statute, the presumption that the legislature intended to change pre-existing law is rebutted. And was that a substantive change in that case? It seems like the case law that I read on this says that if, if you look at the statute in 2017 and compare it to the statute in 2010, if it changed the meaning of the law, then that's not clarifying. Yes, and I acknowledge that that is ordinarily the case, Your Honor. And so this, this case says that, acknowledges that that is ordinarily the presumption. So and what about this change didn't substantively change the meaning of the law? I mean, it added the words, the exact words that we're arguing about right now. Right. And, Your Honor, as I noted earlier when we were initially discussing this change to the law, I noted that going back many, many years, and I don't know if this was the case before 1992 because that was the earliest form that I could find, but it was the longstanding practice of the commissioner through the publication of its forms to calculate the fixed base percentage in this manner, i.e. using Minnesota gross receipts in the denominator of calculating the fixed base percentage. And not only was this the longstanding practice of the commissioner consistently every single year from that point until these cases were, were filed for these refundable credits, but no taxpayer had disputed that that was the correct and, and way. was that true in 2011 for this specific case? I'm sorry, what was, was that? Was that true in 2011 for this specific case that they did that calculation and then came back in 2015 and said, oh, we think this means something different? Yes, correct. The taxpayers did initially calculate it as specified, and I want to back up a little bit. In 20, for the 2010 through 2012 tax years, this statute, 290.068, was amended to make the credit refundable, meaning you get cash back for it as opposed to just using it to offset, right? And initially, these taxpayers had filed their returns um, using the taxpayer's method of calculating the fixed base percentage and also the minimum base amount. Um, subsequently, they amended their returns, these are stipulated facts, to reflect the methods of calculating the minimum base amount and the fixed base percentage that they are that are now before this court, that are the subject of dispute. And this is the first time the taxpayers, that any taxpayers had presented these modes of calculating the fixed base percentage and minimum base amounts in the ways that are now before the court. And just so the court knows, in the case of IBM, this change to the fixed base percentage changed IBM's fixed base percentage from, well, it was 41.43%, which was limited by statute to 16% as filed, to 0.26%. So that's a huge change. And in the case of 
IBM, it was changed from 33.87%, again limited to 16% by statute, to 0.79%. So this change in the so fixed base... it looks like there's a lot of money at stake. Does the record tell us what the fiscal impact is of the tax court's decision? I don't recall what the specific fiscal impact of the tax court's decision was. I believe, in the case of General Mills, let me just explain that these two things, the minimum base amount limitation and the fixed base percentage work kind of in tandem with each other. In the case of some taxpayers, um, they would have had to prevail on both issues to receive a refund. So it's a case-by-case -case analysis. It's sort of a case-by-case -case analysis. Are you asking, Your Honor, um, with respect to each of these taxpayers or overall? Overall. If the record in incorporates that information, I don't want anything outside the record. I believe the record does incorporate that information. Um, the legislative analysis, or I, I can't remember if it was the commissioner's analysis or the legislative analysis, stated that if the taxpayers were to prevail on both these issues, the fiscal impact would be $140 million. And did it break it down between issues? No. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. We'll see you on rebuttal. All right, uh, all right so Mr. Pickert, you're going first, is that right? Correct. Okay. Please, the court again. Can you um, just lift the microphone or the oh. podium a little bit? There you go. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so let me address that last issue. Well, let me remind the court that, as I said earlier, IBM uh, had $178 million in qualified research expenses um, in 2011. Um, it was allowed a credit under the commissioner's theory of $313,000. That's a credit of two-tenths of 1%. It's a very, very low credit. Um, in terms of the fiscal impact, um, the commissioner's brief cites a um, state financial statement which talks about $140 million. But that's misleading because, as she pointed out, there's two issues. And, and weirdly, um, as this case demonstrates, so the, the fixed base issue actually matters more for IBM we don't win the fixed base issue, the other issue doesn't matter. It's just the opposite for General Mills. If they don't win the base amount issue, the fixed base issue doesn't matter. And IBM is a little bit of an anomaly. In fact, so far as I know, it is the only taxpayer that, that prevails. If it prevails on the fixed base issue, it gets a refund. There might be one or two other ones. So the $140 million is for both issues. It's not the fixed base issue amount at all. It's nowhere near the, the, the correct amount. But I don't know what the correct amount is. So um, the, uh, the court seems, from the listening to the argument, the court seems to understand that um, there is um, um, the difference between the aggregate gross receipts, 84 to 88, versus average annual gross receipts for the four precise preceding so years. So in 2011 and before that, when IBM, IBM's understanding was that aggregate gross receipts was what the commissioner says it was? 
when you filed your initial returns? I don't know what IBM's understanding was, but uh, taxpayers, taxpayers frequently file refund claims for this reason, as opposed to taking a position on an original return. They, take the, they file a refund claim for this reason. If they're wrong, they can be penalized. And they'll owe interest. And so they'd prefer to file an original return the way the commissioner likes it, and then file a refund claim. Okay. And that's also true where the minimum base, same logic on the minimum base amount. Not that we're on that issue, but yes. okay, yeah. thank you. Yeah. So, so the court does seem to understand the difference between the two terms, average annual gross receipts for the four preceding years versus aggregate, but some total gross receipts for 84 to 88. So I won't spend any time on that other than to point out that the 2017 amendment added the term aggregate gross receipts for the first time. It and what's your understanding of the law and clarification uh, that this is just clarifying what the legislature always meant? Well, I don't think that it was a clarification. The legislature didn't say so. There's nothing in the legislative history that says so. Sometimes when the legislature does do change the law, it does say that. It's a clarification. My recollection is there are some comments by the commissioner testifying in the legislature that this was just clarifying. But even if that's the case, is how, do you have any understanding of what the law is about what Minnesota law is about clarification and how we interpret supposed clarifications? Yes, I do. Um, so, you know, the rule, the rule is that one a later legislature cannot tell an earlier legislature what the law was before that. So, and there are cases on that, um, which I have here, but, uh, but that's, that's clearly the law, the, that a later legislature cannot tell an earlier legislature. Um, I think the Hutchinson Technology case is one case that says that. A&H uh, Vending is another case that says that. Um, and there are others that say that, that um, even if a legislature says it's a clarification, that doesn't really count. So, uh, we, there was some discussion about, you know, Minnesota in the, you know, gross receipts, or Minnesota QREs, expenses in the numerator, um, worldwide receipts in the denominator. Um, the commissioner said that's not what troubles her. That is what the federal system is. It's U.S. receipts in the numerator, worldwide in the denominator. Why does that make sense? Because the United States is trying to promote research activities in the United States just like Minnesota is trying to promote research activities in Minnesota. But those research activities lead to products that are sold everywhere. So why not reflect that in the denominator instead of re re limiting it to Minnesota? Well, Council, let me ask you about um, the, the phrase aggregate gross receipts in 41C3A. <clears throat> um, it doesn't say in 41C what aggregate gross receipts means, whether it's U.S. receipts or worldwide receipts, correct? It's in the regulations. Right. It's in uh, 26 CFR 1.41-3. Right. And um, are you contending that every IRS regulation that deals with 41C is incorporated in the Minnesota statute? In other words, is the IRS regs changed? Does the Minnesota statute change? 
Well, federal regulations have the force and effect of law if they're adopted in accordance with the Administrative Procedures Act. It's actually part sure, of federal law. Sure, it's definitely law. binding on the federal government, and if you're going to claim a federal they're R&D binding on the federal government. It's, there's never been a dispute. It doesn't specifically say it in the statute. I think you might have called out a reference to gross receipts earlier in paragraph 7, but it doesn't really address anything relevant here. Um, it, it addresses returns and allowances and addresses foreign corporations. It's not really relevant here. Is that part of the definition of um, fixed base percentage? Fixed base percentage. I would say it is. But it doesn't matter in this case. Okay, the, thank the, you. The, 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 the stuff is, the, these numbers are stipulated too. The, the, the qualified, uh, the gross receipts, it's all stipulated too. IBM's not a foreign corporation. So I don't think it matters. Um, but it's just uncontested that it's worldwide gross receipts federally, and it's in the regulations. Um, so the commissioner relies upon the, the whole statute canon. So there's one that has a name, the whole statute canon. And the whole statute canon, uh, the court in Kramer versus Kramer, uh, defined it as a statute should ordinarily be read to, as a whole to harmonize all of its parts, and wherever possible, no word, phrase, or sentence should be deemed superfluous, void, or insignificant. So on the latter point, there's no question here. Nobody's saying that there are words that are insignificant or super, superfluous. Uh, so that's not relevant. So what we really mean by the whole statute canon is words have to be read in context. And uh, they are read in context. We, we don't dispute that. But the, the fact of the matter is that aggregate gross receipts does not, does not appear in Minnesota statutes. Now, Justice Alilahog, you pointed out that you can get there back, going back through the federal statute because aggregate gross receipts appears in the federal statute. So if Minnesota incorporates the federal statute, you can get to aggregate gross receipts. But what you can't get out of the federal statute is any kind of a Minnesota modification to that term. That is just not in the statute for the years in issue. It's in the statute for QREs, expenses, it's in the statute for average annual gross receipts. So the legislature knew how to limit something to Minnesota, and it simply didn't do it for aggregate gross receipts. So the whole statute canon, yeah, we don't dispute that the whole canon, statute canon can apply. But what she's using it for is to read language into the statute, which is you can't do. I mean, your argument is, yeah, apply the whole statute canon, figure out when Minnesota is referred to and when it's not. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's a fundamental principle of law in Minnesota. It's over and over again, tax cases, non-tax cases, that uh, courts cannot supply that which the legislature purposely omits or inadvertently overlooks. And um, that was... It goes back to the Wallace case. It was cited in the, recently in the Marx tax case. It was cited recently in the Gist versus Atlas case, non-tax case. It's just fundamental that courts can't read language into the statute. And that's, what, that's basically what the commissioner is asking the, the, the court to do here. Why uh, is the commissioner wrong that reading it the way you want to read it leads to an absurd result? Well, okay, that's good. I'm glad you asked that. That was my next topic. So it's not, a, it's not an absurd result. She says that the, and I agree, that the statute has to be incremental, uh, but that the research expenses have to be incrementally increased. But when that, that's the whole idea of a base amount. 
Whenever you have a base amount, that's a hurdle that you have to get over, that the taxpayer has to spend more than the base amount. And as we computed the credit, there was a, there was a base amount. It's just a lower base amount than her base amount. So it's incremental in the sense that there's a hurdle to get over. And in, in the briefs, I, as I recall, one of the arguments, kind of a, a more nuanced version of that, and it goes back to some of the arguments that you all made in the minimum base amount, was that interpreting the way that you want to interpret the statute, it's actually going to allow you to take credit for research and development expenses that you make outside of Minnesota. No. Oh, I, we, we get no credit for research. Well, no, I, I, I understand that, but if you have the lower base amount, that there's a possibility that you could, it could, it could work that way. No, because um, you only get, it's, it's qualified research expenses uh, minus the base amount. So qualified research expenses have to be in Minnesota or they don't count. You won't get a credit for them. So we could never get a credit for research outside of Minnesota. I guess the point would be you could get, because the base amount is lower, you could get credit for research and development expenses that occur. Yeah. You, you, well, you get more, I guess, than would otherwise be the case. <clears throat> when the base amount is lower, the credit is larger. But in no instance would there ever be a credit for research expenses outside of Minnesota. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so, so the point is it is an incremental in your, credit. In your view, that keeps the statute from being absurd because we're not, um, Minnesota is not giving credit for research that took place, say, in Texas or New York or where, wherever the corporation Correct. may be. As long as you have a base amount, this, it's, it's incremental. And, and it's not absurd. And we have a base amount. Now, uh, Ms. Tian um, tried to talk the court through some mathematical examples, and um, I'm not a mathematician, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but I, th I think her fundamental point is that we would like the, the, the gross receipts for 84 to 88 to be similar to the gross receipts for the four prior years, and that provides some comparability. The, the, which is fine, but what she's ignoring, she's ignoring a couple of critical things when she says that, when she does her mathematical formulas. One thing she ignores is the 16% cap. So once you throw that 16% cap in there on the fixed base percentage, the comparability goes away. The other thing she ignores is if the minimum base rule does apply, we say it doesn't, but if it does apply, the comparability also goes away. And in fact, if you look at, if you look at this, the uh, exhibit, so we have some exhibits at the tax court uh, that compute the credit. And if you looked at the exhibit J7, uh, which is the fixed base percentage only, that's what the tax court decided on, that's what we won. The, the base amount using the fixed base percentage is 8.4 million. The minimum base amount is 89 million. Because the minimum base amount is larger than the base amount, the base amount becomes irrelevant to the computation of the credit, which means 
that the fixed phase percentage becomes irrelevant to the computation of the credit. So the only thing that's relevant at that point, because the base amount, minimum base amount is so high, is what your QREs, your expenses for that year. It's the only, you get, you get a credit based on the QREs for that year, half of them. So this comparability goes away if you're in the minimum base situation, which we are unless we win that issue. And we're still in the 16% cap issue. Uh, Ms. Tian made a reference to the Commissioner's forms and instructions. Forms and instructions are not entitled to deference by, by a court. Um, in Commissioner of Revenue versus Richardson, uh, 1981 case, the, this court said instructions have no legal effect. In the Hutchinson Technology case, uh, the court said something similar. Uh, the court has never given deference to, to instructions. Um, she cites some other things, like a legislator's auditor's office report and a short subject by the House Research. Those are not legislative history. Those are also not entitled to deference. Um, the legislative auditor's report is not even written by attorneys. So when concern came up over the meaning of gross receipts in, the, in 41C, the IRS commissioner promulgated a, a regulation. Did the, did the Minnesota commissioner attempt to promulgate any regulations regarding the meaning of aggregate gross receipts? Well, they didn't have to. Well, for, first of all, I don't think there ever was concern over the meaning of gross receipts. I think the premise that the IRS promulgated a regulation out of concern, I don't think there ever was any doubt about what gross receipts were, that they were worldwide. But uh, the, commissioner, the commissioner of revenue, you know, very rarely promulgates regulations. I can't remember a single one in the last 10 years. And, you know, if they wanted to provide clarity, they could promulgate a I think we had one uh, interpreting a regulation regarding pipeline valuation that may have been in the last uh, 10 yes. years. Yes, yeah. I don't know when that was. Mr. Muck probably is familiar yeah, with that I don't that know one. when that was. When I, when I said 10 years, that's uh, like uh, for commissioner-based taxes. Uh, but they just very rarely promulgate regulations for whatever reason. And um, if they wanted to have more certainty and, and get more deference, they could do it, but they don't. Um, so, so, unless the court has any other questions, I think that's all I have. Okay, okay. then, um, Mr. Muck, you have five minutes on this issue as well. I think uh, Walter Pickard has covered everything I would have said, so I will waive my five minutes unless the court has a question to me. Good. Thank you, so counsel. We... All right. Uh, Ms. Tian for rebuttal. Thank you. I only have a couple of things I want to say to the court in rebuttal. Um, first of all, 
Mr. Pickard noted that the forms and instructions published by the commissioner don't have the force and effect of law. And my point earlier in mentioning the publication of the forms and instructions and their use by taxpayers during the course of many years was not to suggest that forms and instructions themselves have the force and effect of law. It was to suggest that their uncontested use over a long period of time by taxpayers without being disputed in this manner was evidence that taxpayers were familiar with the manner in which the commissioner was applying the law and it was not suggested at any point prior to 2010 when the law was amended to make these credits refundable there was not so are you suggesting the taxpayers are in some way stopped from seeking the refunds that they seek now i i guess i don't understand the argument just because they filed forms that they now contend the formula was mistaken that's not a stopping them in any way, is it? No, I'm not suggesting that they're Sh stopped in any way. It shouldn't even cut against them, should it? Well, I'm suggesting that they, the long, this is a long-standing, reasonable interpretation of the law by the, by the commissioner. And that long-standing, reasonable interpretation of the law by the commissioner should receive some deference. Um, it is something that the commissioner has espoused for many years and on account of that, it's not, in other words, it's not an unreasonable interpretation of the statute. It's so are, are you arguing that the statute's ambiguous? Yes. I mean, to this point, I don't think the statute is genuinely ambiguous, but I suppose to the extent it could be considered ambiguous, the statute should be read in pari materia with the rest of the statute. And the rest of the statute does strongly suggest that it has a Minnesota frame of reference. Yeah, I mean, in determining whether there's ambiguity, we don't determine how, how long a previous interpretation may have gone without being challenged. It may be a long-standing, unreasonable interpretation. We have to start with the plain language of the statute, right? Yes, correct, Your Honor. Okay. okay. But to Justice Thiessen's point, um, I suppose it's possible the statute could be considered ambiguous. I mean, I personally don't find it ambiguous. I think it's completely possible to read the statute in the context of its surrounding language. I mean, the aggregate gross receipts language in the context of the surrounding language of the statute and reach the only reasonable conclusion, which is that it means aggregate Minnesota gross receipts. But to the extent it appears ambiguous, I think that language also can be read in the context of the remainder of the statute and to read it harmoniously and together with the remainder of the statute, it can only mean one thing, which is aggregate Minnesota gross receipts. But I also wanted to say um, I wasn't going to resort to any additional math because I wasn't going to. But Justice Thiessen, you had asked a question of Mr. Pickard regarding, um, I think it was something I, I raised in my brief relating to whether the statute was absurd because it allowed um, the taxpayer to essentially take um, R&D expenses that they had expended in other states. And that I don't think that was exactly what I was suggesting in my brief. It was more a question of such dilution of those expenses that it was not possible to tell whether expenditures in Minnesota exceeded were the same as or were less than in a prior year. Yeah, and that, I, that's the point. I, we ran some scenario, I ran some math 
scenarios that which is dangerous but there were circumstances because of using worldwide because of the, the, using their interpretation where you could get a situation where there actually is less QREs in a particular year compared with the prior four years and you would still qualify for a tax credit. I actually prepared one. I could run through it, but I'm afraid I'll run out of time. Well, that, that's fine, but that is the case. Yes, that is the case. In fact, I, I mean, I can run through my scenario or you can just do it yourself, but um, it only works and you can only actually tell if that's the case, and this is my point, if you know what the aggregate gross receipts in the base period are in Minnesota, if you use the taxpayer's scenario and you don't use aggregate gross receipts in Minnesota in the base period, you actually have no way of knowing whether the taxpayer's expenditures in the current period are more or less than they spent in Minnesota, and that totally defeats the purposes of the statute. Okay, that's all I have. Thank, Thank you, you. Council. Thanks to all counsel for the help that you provided to the court in these cases. Um, these cases are now submitted. We will issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.